would turn to the 16th chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We'll be thinking about some things starting there in just a moment. Of course, a blessing to be with you today, to be able to encourage one another in the way that we have, and to worship God together, to have a foretaste of the sin for eternity, singing praises to our God and His presence before His throne if we're faithful. And that's what today has been all about, is helping each other get to the promised land. And you've certainly helped me and it's an encouragement to me, and I hope that you've benefited from your presence here this morning. If you're visiting with us, we want you to know how encouraged we are by your presence, and we want you to know that you're an honored guest, and we'd love to see you back at any other opportunity you might have. And if you have any questions about what we've done here at this place, or about what I've spoken here and the preaching of the gospel, love you to ask those questions, and we'd love to study the Bible with you. In 2020, we had a little bit of a global crisis, and it changed a lot of the way we thought and a lot of the ways that we did things, especially we reflect on that in regard to some of the changes we had to make as a congregation meeting to worship the Lord, and there was a lot that goes on with that, and some of those changes have remained in place. Um, used to, I believe, in this place, pretty common other places that Christians gather to worship, after perhaps a song separating it, but after the Lord's Supper, we would have given time to fulfill the command to give as we have been prospered. And now what we do because of the pandemic, really, and as a matter of of expediency, really, I think it's a, a good way of doing it, is we drop our collection into the box in the back as members of this congregation and give as we have been prospered on the way in or on the way out in that way. Well, I think that this topic of giving on the first day of the week has always been one that is sorely misunderstood by many. Uh, I think it's, it's one that is somewhat neglected to a degree in regard to spending time on discussing it and teaching it. And that, that goes for me. I certainly don't believe that the 10 years I've been preaching, I've preached on it near as much as I probably should have. And because of that, there is some misunderstanding about it. But it is a part of our worship. It's a part of what God requires of us as disciples of Christ. But it's deep. It's spiritual. It is certainly a spiritual activity. You might think of it in this way as the Apostle Paul quoted Jesus himself in Acts 20 and verse 35 to the Ephesian elders. He said, Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so there's a spiritual connotation to this as we give, as we've been prospered on the first day of the week. But even more than that, I think one of the things that it's a blessing to us. And that contradicts our normal way of thinking as human beings, especially in a country like the one that we live in. Very wealthy we take for granted a lot of the things that we have. Sometimes, as James mentioned in class, we think of the things that we have that are luxuries as necessities. How much do we actually need? Well, God talks about food and clothing, and with these we should be content. But we, we think about getting and receiving as being blessed. But Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. 
And while that's certainly a practical truth that is something that occurs and reoccurs in a regularity within our life, in our encounters with family and friends, but also with strangers, it's more blessed to give than to receive. This is also true in the context of the command to give of our means in worship to God. It is certainly a duty. It's certainly something that we are expected to do as Christians. It's an obligation. It is something that is regular in our worship as we come together and as we observe this on the first day of the week. But it is also to be understood as a blessing to participate in, as a privilege that is bestowed on us by our God. And so I want to think about that this morning and understand it because it is something we don't need to forget about. Just because now we don't have a time set aside in the actual service as we progress through the activities of worship as we've done this morning, it's still something we do on the first day of the week. We don't need to forget about it just because there's a black box in the back that you drop your check in. We need to think about what this, what is, what is entailed in this, what, what this amounts to, what, what is our heart and how is our mind supposed to be in regard to fulfilling this. And so what we're going to do, and I appreciate Brennan reading from 2 Corinthians 8, is spend a lot of our time in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 to see what is the grace of giving and understand what I even mean by that in the title. But before we get to that, there's some groundwork I do want to just refresh ourselves with. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the Apostle Paul ends his epistle with this command. He says, Concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay aside something, something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there may be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Specifically, this practice of us on the first day of the week giving and laying by in store as we have been prospered started with this specific need of those saints who were lacking the saints in need and you notice there in verse 3 he speaks about bearing the gift to Jerusalem specifically in first Corinthians 16 and in other places when this contribution is considered it was within the very specific need of that time of saints in Jerusalem who were impoverished. For whatever reason, it doesn't detail. We know in Acts chapter 11, there was a famine that was foretold. But this is even a separate reference to the time when they gave in Acts chapter 11. They are still poor in Jerusalem for whatever reason. And there was a need there. You might remember in Acts the 15th chapter that Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem after they had heard some in Antioch speak about how there were Jews binding circumcision as necessary for salvation. And so they went to Jerusalem in Acts 15 to figure out what was going on and to determine whether the apostles and elders in Jerusalem were standing for the truth. And they determined by the Holy Spirit's revelation that God had determined that Gentiles don't need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved. That they're going to be saved in the same manner as we by faith. During that particular council where the truth was defended, it was made apparent that the Paul's mission given by the Lord himself was to the Gentiles and not just to the Jews. He taught the Jews. He went to the synagogues first. 
but his primary focus was to the Gentiles. And you might remember in Galatians chapter 2, which seems to be considering that time in Acts chapter 15, that when James and Cephas and John of Galatians 2.9, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, that his, his mission, his appointment to the Gentiles, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. But notice verse 10. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was eager to do. What was made a request of Paul at that time was why you go to the Gentiles. You leave your countrymen, you go to foreign cities and places of paganism to preach the gospel and, and bring those who are not of this fold into the fold of God like Jesus foretold of in John chapter 10 and his consideration of himself as the good shepherd. That you remember your poor brethren back in Judea. You, don't forget about us. And the way Paul would remember that was by ordering this collection. You notice there in verse 1, he said, I had given orders to the churches of Galatia. And so before he ever gave the orders to Corinth, he had already given orders to churches in Galatia to give of their means for the poor saints in Jerusalem. He says, you've got to do this as well. In fact, we understand this as a command for all who are disciples, as we'll notice in a moment. In addition to the churches of Galatia and Corinth, that is Achaia as is referenced in other places, were the churches of Macedonia. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, in verse 1, Paul wanted them to be aware of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that they were involved in this effort of giving. In chapter 9, in verse 2 of 2 Corinthians he says, I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. And so hearing of the Corinthians' involvement, the churches of Macedonia got involved, as Paul gave orders to them as well. In Romans, the 15th chapter, the Apostle Paul gave attention to his travel plans. And essentially what he says is, I'm, I'm wanting to come to you when I'm on my way to Spain. But i got to go bear this gift to Jerusalem first. And he mentions this gift that would be born to the saints in Jerusalem and asks the Romans to pray for its success. He says in verse 31 of Romans 15, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, pray about that, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. So that's the background of this. There was a specific need in Jerusalem for impoverished saints, and the way that that was solved by the revelation of God was that Gentiles gave of their means on the first day of the week. Christians came together, they, they gave of their means on the first day of the week, and when they did that, they had a store to take from, and when Paul came, he took that portion that they had determined to send to the needy saints, and he took that to Jerusalem and ministered to them. Now there's something else I want us to think about when we're considering this collection. While specifically in 1 Corinthians 16, he speaks about it being for the needy saints in Jerusalem. This represents a pattern for accumulating funds for the work of the Lord. This is the only place we see in the New Testament about the regularity of accumulating a treasury of money to be used for the carrying on of the Lord's work. Specifically here it's about benevolence. But we know that there's other work that the church is involved in, according to the Lord's command. For example, in Ephesians chapter 4, we see the work of edification 
that the Lord has given to his church. He himself gave some to be apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. We know that the work is given of evangelism to the Lord's church. In Matthew 28, in verse 18, he says, Based on my authority that has been given to me, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations and teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. That was seen in Acts the 8th chapter and verse 4 in the persecution when Christians scattered going about everywhere preaching the word. I think what we need to understand from this, by implication, necessary inferences that we make throughout the rest of Scripture, that it wasn't just the work of benevolence the church was given to that required money but also the work of edification requires money. The work of evangelism requires money. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and in verses 17 and 18, when we're thinking about the edification of the church, a primary role of the church's edification involves what Timothy, or Paul rather, detailed in Ephesians chapter 4 as the work of pastors, elders, shepherds. And in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17, Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. But he's not just talking about this honor in regard to our estimation of them, but as it's manifested as well, even in payment. He says, The scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. We see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 14 for preachers of the gospel. Paul said, Even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. This is not benevolence. It's not charity. This is a worker who is worthy of his wages for elders, but also evangelists. We see an example of this in Philippians, the fourth chapter with the Apostle Paul. He told the church in Philippi that they had done well, that they shared in his distress. In what way? Well, it's financial as the context continues. You Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. They sent him money in support of the gospel preaching. In 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 8, the apostle Paul is dealing with the Corinthians improper view of him where they had originally manifested a character where Paul thought that if I take support from them, they'll claim that I'm only doing it for money. So Paul determined to not receive support from them. And now he's dealing with in 2 Corinthians 11, their heart that was obviously tainted in their relationship with him, where they thought that him not taking money from them was a slight to them and that that was offensive. So Paul says, I robbed other churches taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one for what I lacked to the brethren who came from Macedonia supply. And so essentially he's receiving support in his preaching of the gospel. He's earning wages in his preaching of the gospel. But where is all of that coming from? And we make a side note as well, and there's another lesson for this. But when you think about authority, whatever is necessary or expedient, To carry out a command is included in the command. So the building that we're meeting in right now, where'd that come from? What money was used? Do we have authority for it? I think we do. The songbooks we use in worship and edification of one another. What about the teaching materials that we utilize? The church owns some Bibles. Where did those come from? It came from what we read in 1 Corinthians 16. There is a treasury that exists from the first day of the week giving 
of the church's members. How did they collect that money? That's the only way we see. And so you've got not only the background of it being for needy saints, but the implication that comes with that, that there are works the church is given by the Lord that require money. It can't be done without money. It may be limited to the money and the capacity with which a local congregation has, not to be receiving money in unauthorized ways, but only what their members can give. But it takes money. It takes money, and we understand that. This is the way it was collected. But from that, we understand that as the church cannot carry on its work without this, by God's wisdom, it is a command for each and every one of us. And we've got to be fulfilling it. He says, I have given orders to the churches of Galatia. And he says, so also you must do, and you might remember in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, before he got to that point about the collection, he explained to them, he said, for this reason I have sent Timothy to you who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere and in every church. Everything he teaches in 1 Corinthians. He had taught in one way, shape, or form everywhere he went. He taught about Christ, the foundation of Christ. He taught about purity. He taught about sanctification. He taught about the work and worship of the church. He, he covers it all everywhere he goes. And that's manifested in the fact that he taught the Galatians that they must give of their means. And he taught the Corinthians that you must do the same. He taught the Macedonians that they must do the same. Every church was doing this on the first day of the week. And one of the reasons was for the work of benevolence that God had given the church to needy saints, but also to carry out the work of evangelism, to carry out the work of edification. When we break this down, it's pretty simple we see that this command was of a periodic nature. He says on the first day of the week. You might be interested to know that other translations, like the New American Standard Bible, says on the first day of every week. And it's the same reason why we take the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. He says on the first day of the week, disciples came together to break bread, Acts 20 and verse 7. How many first days of the week are there? There's one in every week. You come together on the first day of every single week. Linsky in his commentary on 1 Corinthians says kata, which is on, on the first day of the week. That word on in the Greek is distributive so that we may translate Sunday by Sunday lay each one of you lay by. This is a continuation, a constant thing. But you notice as well that it's personal. He says on the first day of the week, let each one of you. I can't sing songs of praises for you. I can't listen to the prayer and say amen for you. You've got to do that. I can't discern the Lord's body for you. If you're distracted in the Lord's Supper, you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. If I'm distracted in the Lord's Supper, I'm eating and drinking judgment to myself. It doesn't matter how focused you are. That's an individual thing. And so it is with this. It's not enough that just the, the wealthiest families give on the first day of the week. It's not enough that just the adults give on the first day of the week. I want to tell you something. If you're a Christian and you're prospering, whether you're 14 or 35 or 65, you give of your means as you've been prospered. And that's something parents need to teach their children. The Lord has blessed you with that and you are to reciprocate with giving a portion back to Him. Each and every individual Christian is obligated to do this. And I want us to notice too that it takes planning. It's provident. He says, lay something aside, storing up as you have been prospered. It literally means to put by Himself. And so, within your personal prosperity, the funds that you have 
earned and God has blessed you with, you take aside from that, lay it by yourself, and then bring it to this storing up, the collection. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and in verse 7 in regard to this being with careful planning and consideration. In 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7, let each one of you give as he purposes in his heart, not grudging or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so if you don't budget, if that's not your thing, you don't want to think about what's coming in and going out each month and you're pretty comfortable so you don't need to worry about that, you do need to budget this. This is the first thing. This is the priority. When we get that paycheck, we've already determined what's coming out of it. And so that allows us to not cheat the Lord in that regard. It's provident. We, we plan for this. But we notice also that it's different from what we read of in the Old Testament with the tithe, which means a tenth of what the Lord had given them and what they had been blessed with. This is proportionate. There's not a specific amount given. He just says, as he may prosper. And the idea is that if I prosper much, I can give much. If I prosper little, I'll be giving less than one who prospers more. That's the idea. But it's proportionate. And so it's something we take care to think about. And it's going to be relative to the ability of each and within, as we'll notice, our liberality. In 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 8 and in verse 12, this is the way the Apostle Paul put it. If there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has to what he does not have. He's not expecting you to give more than what you're able to give, but you do it with a cheerful heart. We'll emphasize that in a moment. I want us to notice this last thing, that it is preventative. He says that there may be no collections when I come. You notice we passed over that phrase, storing up. It's a Greek word which means to gather and lay up, to heap up, to store up, to keep in store, to store up. And so it's a verb It means to treasure up, but what it involves is the implication of the result of that action. When I've treasured something up, I have a treasury. When I've stored something up, I have a store of items. This case, it's money. It's this wealth that God has blessed me with and I'm giving back. And so what they were contributing to was not laying by and and keeping a fund at home so that when Paul comes, then they can gather it up contradictory idea that there may be no collections when I come. They were pulling their money together into one store, into one treasury. And wherever that was kept, it's not telling us. We may use a bank account. They may have used a basket. Whatever it was, they kept it all together so that when Paul comes, their gift is ready. And that manifests a preparedness not only for benevolence when a need arises, where we don't have to run and get collections, but we have a store. We've got that available but also for evangelism and for edification. And so summarized, each Sunday, every individual Christian who has prospered is to contribute to the storing up of church funds what he has personally determined in proportion to his prosperity. And this allows for the church to carry on the work the Lord has given her. But it's, there's more that's involved than just, it's a financial thing, it's just a kind of keeping the books type of a thing so we can continue to function There's a very deep spiritual activity that we're involved in when we're giving of our means. And in fact, it's a part of God's grace that he has bestowed upon us that we even have that ability to give and participate in this way. I want us to notice that in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We'll be primarily here for the rest of this lesson, as I mentioned before. I want us to notice 
that the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, he, he speaks about this collection, but he starts off, as he had done in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, he said, I'm giving you this command. He takes a slightly different approach in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He's trying to draw it out of them. He's trying to, to get them involved in a very heartfelt way. And so he appeals to the diligence of others. And as he appeals to the diligence of others, what this context really does is it manifests the deep spiritual nature of this activity. It's not just, it is not enough for me to drop a check in that black box without any kind of heart being involved in any of it. And not just in the action of dropping it, but in the preparation and the thoughtfulness about this and, and the purposing in my heart about this. And 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 do an excellent job by the inspiration of God in demonstrating that. I want us to notice what he says in verse 8. We'll get to the Macedonians in a moment. But he says in verse 8, 2 Corinthians 8, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. This is one of those not but structures. We saw it was a commandment in 1 Corinthians 16. He's saying, I'm not saying this merely by commandment. I could have just commanded you and done nothing else. But I'm emphasizing that you're being tested as to your sincere love for the Lord and for the brethren who are in need. He's using the sincere love and devotion to God's will that the Macedonians have manifested in their liberality to strike a chord with the Corinthians so that they will give like the Macedonians gave. Not the same amount. That's not what he's saying at all. But with the same heart, with the same focus. This is more than just dropping some money in a plate. This is about our heart being involved in a, an act of obeisance to God. It's a, it's a matter of worship. Don't doubt that. It's a matter of worship from the heart. I think we can pick up on this. For example, in Philippians, the fourth chapter, back when the Apostle Paul was talking about the Philippians giving him monetary support, he said, Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full. I have received from Epaphroditus. Notice he says, The thing sent from you, a sweet smell aroma and acceptable sacrifice well pleasing to God when they sent money to support Paul in the preaching of the gospel that was an offering of a sacrifice up to God and I want to tell you something there's something retrospective in this as well in 1st Corinthians 16 as we noted this was preventative that there be no collections when I come it's already pulled together and so this this started back when they were contributing regularly on the first day of the week they were making sacrifices and offerings to God. It didn't have something earmarked for it at that time, but when Paul comes along, they hear of him, and he's in need. Now it's all pulled together. Their sacrifice was made back here, and it's manifested up here. And Paul's acknowledging that when you gave as you had been prospered, it wasn't just some financial thing. It wasn't just a mindless donation. You pull up to McDonald's, and they say, you want to round up and donate to the children's fund? And you're like, okay, I guess so, if you're pressuring me into it. There's not really a thought that says this was a spiritual sacrifice to God and he smells it and it's sweet to him we need to understand it as that this is there's a worshipful connotation to this and I think we see it with the example of the Macedonians it was more than just he doesn't say they gave a thousand dollars doesn't say they gave a million dollars he says they gave in this way and that's the emphasis that he's having here you notice in verse 2 it says, 
and a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear them witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. And we'll get more to the detail of verse 2 in a moment. But he's saying they're impoverished themselves and they didn't give reluctantly. They were eager to do it. They were freely willing to do it. That's the sacrifice. It's not the amount that is the sacrifice to God. It's the amount of ourselves that we're giving. And that's what he goes on to demonstrate. He says they were freely willing, verse 4, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. There's something interesting here. Early manuscripts omit that phrase that you just heard from the New King James Version, that we would receive. So if you have a New American Standard Bible or an English Standard Version, it bears out what is more likely the accurate note of the Holy Spirit concerning their giving. The New American Standard Bible says this, they were begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And so the difference is this, they're begging us to receive the gift that they're giving versus they're begging us to give them the gift of being able to participate in giving. That's profound. That's pretty deep. That's spiritual. They considered the privilege and opportunity of sacrificing their own money out of their poverty. They didn't have much to give. They considered being able to give even from their poverty, people that probably should be receiving money themselves. They determined giving from their own poverty itself was a gift to them. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. It's more than just a dollar sign. In fact, before a dollar sign even showed up, they had given something. The Apostle Paul explains furthermore this freely willing and the, the liberality of their giving in these words, not only as we had hope, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. They, he's saying they were so involved in giving to, in general, the will of the Lord. They were so on fire for the Lord. They were so involved in spiritual things and the work of the church and the interest of God's eternal plan that when we came along as those who were carrying out part of God's will with this collection, they were all in. In fact, we were going to request this of them and they requested of us that they could be involved in it. That's impressive. That shows spiritual involvement to a great degree. So someone tries to convince themselves that I've showed up on the first day of the week and I completely forgot. I, I never really give much thought to it. I just kind of take my wallet out and whatever spare change I had from the week, I toss in there. But I'm devoted to God. That, that doesn't reflect who I really am. You're fooling yourself. What Paul is saying is that your giving as you have been prospered, directly corresponds to how much of yourself you give. You might have heard that it was said in a ham and egg breakfast that the chicken is involved, but the pig is committed. These brethren were committed. They didn't just give some money. They gave themselves to the Lord. The giving of their money was only a byproduct, really, of their fullness of devotion to God's will and His work. I'm so devoted to God's work that when God tells me, well, my work here requires some money, it's yours, it's yours, Lord. It was already yours because of their involvement and their devotion to it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 5, you notice that 
being mentioned when he says he thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand that you had previously promised that it may not be ready as a matter of that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Verse seven, he says, God loves a cheerful giver. Give as you have purposed in your heart, not grudgingly of necessity, but but this is out of you having already given yourself to the Lord. The Macedonians were a case in point of that. So he gives them as an example. And it really shows us what's involved in this activity. It's more than just money. It's way more than just money. Don't minimize it. In fact, it gives Jesus as an example. You notice there in verse 9? It says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, and you through his poverty, that you through his poverty might become rich. What's interesting is the Macedonians' giving and their faith, their love for the Lord and for the brethren is manifested by their giving and liberality from their poverty. And the way that Jesus is giving in his love and his involvement in the Lord's will as a parallel to what ours should be is emphasized is that he was richer than anyone ever. He was in the glories of heaven and he gave up everything, left everything so that we ourselves would become rich. We remember well in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6 that he was in the form of God and didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so this highlights with the Macedonians, especially Christ, that this is more than just dropping a bill in the plate, scribbling your signature on a check week by week. This involves so much more of spiritual sacrifice and a giving of our souls to the Lord. And in that way, I want us to understand it in regard to this context. He calls it a grace. He calls it a part of God's grace. In fact, the whole context of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is framed by grace. He wants them to know of the grace of God bestowed on the church of Macedonia. In verse 7, he calls the very act of, of participating in this ministry a grace. You, you abound in this grace also. And he ends in chapter 9 with the fact that their prayer is that, that the exceeding grace of God for you would come about. And thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. The gift is this very involvement and activity and prescription by the Lord in giving as we have prospered. Gives us so much more of a deep consideration of what's going on here. You notice there in verse 1 that the Macedonians giving their source of it of God. He says, I want you to know about the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. You might remember in Acts 11 and verse 23, when Barnabas is sent to Antioch, when they hear of Gentile Christians obeying the gospel, he's sent to Antioch to help them. When he had got there, he saw the grace of God. And what, what he saw is the effects of God's grace in the lives of these people. The effects of God's generosity and the giving of His Son and in the forgiveness of sins and the offering of hope and making them His children. That had an effect on them. It transformed them. It changed them. You had idolaters and immoral people and pagans who had completely abandoned their life of immorality in service of the King. 
He saw the grace of God. He saw it transform. That's what he's saying here. This giving that the Macedonians have shown and manifested, its only possible source is God's grace. The only way that someone could be transformed to be able to do something like this is not from their own ability or or their own wisdom. It came from a transforming power from on high. It came from the grace of God. The very fact that they were able to give is a part of God's grace, as we'll see in chapter 9 as well, as He gives us what we give. But you notice especially that in verse 2. They were brethren who were afflicted. doesn't tell us what the affliction was, but not only were they poor, but they were afflicted. Perhaps it's persecution. Perhaps it's some kind of natural disaster or famine of some sort. But you notice there that in their affliction, they had an abundance of joy. And, and their joy that was in an abundant supply, coupled together with their poverty, ironically, as an outflow of liberality. What's that mean? Essentially what he's saying is that though they were afflicted and poor, they realized their wealth in Jesus Christ. And they had an abundance of joy. How in the world were a people like the Macedonians who themselves were poor, and like I said before, were themselves likely in need of aid of some sort? How did they give so much? How did they fail to even hesitate and give with such generosity and liberality? Because the grace of God had transformed them. They realized that they could have a cent to their name and they're the richest people in the world. And when you've got someone with that mindset, they'll give anything and everything if it's to the Lord's cause. They're willing to sacrifice it all. In fact, it's interesting that the word liberality is from a word which means single or Simple And so Strong defines it as singleness, sincerity, dissimulation, or, or without dissimulation or self-seeking. Thayer says it means not self-seeking, an openness of heart manifesting itself by generosity. And so the idea is that they're giving in liberality. It was liberality because it was undivided. It was without reservation. When, when they gave, they weren't thinking, ah, I want to hold back a little of this for myself. They had a singular focus because they didn't need that money. They had God's riches. And because their focus was, was singular, they gave all that they could give. They gave with liberality. Only the grace of God could produce such a contented bliss that would lead to such liberal giving when already there was so little to give. Remember the widow and her two mites? All these rich people are giving into the treasury box. Jesus is he's seeing them, he's witnessing that, and this widow gives two mites, and Jesus tells his disciples, she has given more than anyone else. She has given her livelihood. It's not about the money. It's about giving yourself. In fact, you notice in verse 7, after he gives the Macedonians as an example, he tells the, the Corinthians, as you abound in everything, and he lists some grace, some, some gifts of God that they 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 participate in and and they, they're blessed with more so when they participate in it, but, but that also results in the blessedness of others. Faith and speech and knowledge and diligence and in your love for us. He says, see that you abound in this grace also. This is a gift of God that we're involved in. That's what he's saying. It is a gift of God that you even have the ability and the privilege to participate in contributing to such a wonderful work. The fact that such participation in giving is a product of God's grace and is itself, it sources God's grace that I'm able to do this, that I am willing to do this, 
but the giving itself and that opportunity is a gift from God to me is manifested furthermore in the context of chapter 8 and in chapter 9. You notice there that what's manifested is that it's a gift to me that I get to give of my means on the first day of the week because it means I get to participate in a good work. We mentioned the wording of in verse 4 just a moment ago that they were begging us earnestly, the ESV says, for the favor of partaking or taking part in the relief of the saints. They were begging the apostles to let them give. That's impressive because they knew it involved them in a wonderful work. It's called a grace itself. And I think we can understand that it's a wonderful work, especially in benevolence, when we think of what Jesus said in and in verse 40, the king will answer and say to them when they say, when did we do this? Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Wouldn't you jump at the opportunity if Jesus was here in bodily form to wash his feet, to serve him in some manner? He's telling us you have that opportunity. You can, when you give of your means, participate in this wonderful and impressive work. It's bigger than just dropping the money in the plate. It's a bigger work than that. In fact, when we think about it beyond the, the limited context of benevolence and understand those implications that there's more work to do and you get the money to do it from this treasury, you see what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1 where he talked about how that they had shared with him and he praised for their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. He's, he's, he's thanking God for that. And he's confident that God who began a good work will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And, and while that involves more than just their monetary support of him, it certainly is alluding to that because in chapter 4, that's what he goes on to say. They shared with him in his distress from the beginning of the gospel. And in doing that, they're involved in the work of the preaching of the gospel. They're participating in what Paul's doing. You remember in 3 John, Gaius is commended for his actions as he had received brethren who came along who were going to preach the gospel. And he says, if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you'll do well because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. And then he said, we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. I want to tell you something. When the gospel is supported through the pay of a preacher, the pay of a gospel meeting preacher, the, the pay of a foreign worker preaching the gospel, the support of an elder who's worthy of his wages, the, the buying and purchasing of materials to study and Bibles to read and study from, uh, even of songbooks to sing songs of praise to God from and to edify one another with truths from God's will. You are involved in the work of edification and evangelism in part through your giving as you have been prospered. You understand that? If a woman is wondering how she can contribute to the preaching of the gospel because the women cannot have authority or speak over a man, well, you do when you give as you've been prospered. You certainly do when you listen. But in this context, you're involved in a wonderful, wonderful work. I want us to notice that furthermore in chapter 9. He talks about how when you give, then you receive back. But I want us to keep it in this context of us being enabled 
to be a part of a good work. So you notice in verse 6, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. You might wonder at first, well, is this Paul's version of the gospel of health and wealth? That if I give more money, God's going to bless me with even more money and I'll be a millionaire eventually. That's not what he's saying, though. Notice what he goes on to say. Let each one gives as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. He's saying you give bountifully so you'll reap bountifully, but that reaping bountifully is so that you can keep giving bountifully. And so it's a cycle. Is that your mindset in giving more? Or is it, I'm giving more so I can get more? Because what God is telling us here is it's a blessing to sow bountifully because you are blessed with a bountiful reaping, but that's only so you can keep giving back. It's cyclical. Because the giving itself is the gift, not the money. You see that? And so he goes on to quote from Psalm 112, which in its context demonstrates that people who are righteous and they're, they're giving to the needy and God keeps blessing them so they can keep giving. He says he is dispersed abroad and is given to the poor. He's talking about a, a man of God who is giving and his righteousness, his giving endures forever. It'll never stop because God will keep supplying him with the ability to give. So may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality. What a blessing it is. It's a blessing to give. But when I give, God gives back so I can continue to enjoy that blessing of being involved in such a work such as this. For the needy saints, for the work of the church in its totality. And what that also amounts to in regard to the blessings, the grace of this giving that we're involved in, is that it focuses everyone's attention on God. Did you notice there in verse 11? It causes thanksgiving through us to God. He explains, For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. You may think that that's kind of backwards, that if, if the Corinthians give to the church in Judea, they will thank the Corinthians. Well, yes, that'll happen. They'll thank God. They know where it came from. And so what this activity does is it draws everyone's attention on God. It, it produces spiritual minds as we're all involved in this activity. You notice there as well the thanksgiving is not just that they had received the gift, but you notice in verse 13, while they through the proof of this ministry glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ. Actually, a tool of God to promote unity. In the infancy of the church, when you've got Jew and Gentile coming together, there's a lot of potential for disunity and disharmony. And that's exactly what we see throughout the New Testament. In Romans 14, Paul deals with an entire chapter about Jewish Gentile conflict and that they need to be at peace with one another. Ephesians 4, you need to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. One of the tools that allowed for that unity was this contribution. When the needy saints in Jerusalem, the Jews, received money from Gentiles of all people, it was proof to them that they were Christians, that they were children of God as much as they were. And they were happy about it. They rejoiced before God about that. They rejoiced 
for their sharing, not just with them, but with all men, that they were active Christians, that they truly loved their brethren, Jew, Gentile, Asian, Samaritan, Macedonian, Corinthian, no matter what, they loved brethren, and they manifested that in the giving of this gift. God is to be thanked for this wonderful activity. It produced prayers on behalf of other Christians. And it produces prayers as well for us by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. They prayed for the Corinthians that this grace that God had bestowed upon them, this gracious work that they had the privilege of being involved in, that it would be carried forward to its fullness. And, and just like Paul said in Philippians 4, the concept is not just that the, the Jerusalem and, and Judean Jewish brethren were praying that they would finally receive that gift because they really need it. That's not the point. This, this is unselfish. This is out of care for others, interest of others, and especially the interest of God's will. Just like Paul told the Philippians, I didn't speak in regard to need for the gift. I know contentment. I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. That's what the Jews are praying for. And so this plays off of each other as they pray for each other and their benefit, not just in receiving the gift, but in the benefit for the Corinthians giving of the gift. So no wonder Paul ends it this way. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. He's not talking about Jesus. That's certainly true throughout the New Testament. Be impressed that he's talking about giving of our means on the first day of the week. There is so much involved in this. We, we talk about grace. We want to emphasize grace. And rightly so. It's, it's all about the grace of God when it really comes down to it. Everything that we're involved in, every blessing we receive, it's all chalked up to the grace of God. I want to tell you, I think sometimes, at least speaking from my own experience, I have minimized just how much of giving is God's grace. Not just the fact that I may receive some of it as a preacher or a person in need may receive some of it in benevolence, but that I get to participate in it. That's, that's a grace of God bestowed upon me. And we need to think of it as such. It is profoundly spiritual. Don't you minimize it at all. Don't you discount it. It is worth far more than we sometimes give it attention. We need to realize just how blessed we are to be participating in all that God has given us to participate in, and this no less. Appreciate your kind attention this afternoon. If you're not obedient to the gospel this day, God has granted you this time as an opportunity. We don't know how much time we have left, but we do know we have now. And God has given you this time to be right with Him. If there's any need that we can assist you with of a spiritual nature, come forward while we stand and sing.